1: Hi, everyone, and welcome again to my Awakening Now podcast. This is Lama Suri Das on the Be Here Now network, inspired by Ram Das, where we have many teachers' podcasts that you can click on and listen to. So please join us and Awaken Now. You can also follow me on social media, etc. So today we have a guest from down under from Australia, Dr. Ian Duncan, a sleepologist. I'm always talking about awakening, but he seems to be into sleeping. So I don't know, we might have to fight it out and decide what's better. But he's a great guy and we've gotten to know each other a little. He's written, he's published, he's taught, he's doing a lot of research. On sleep, dreams, higher consciousness, meditation, and spirituality. And I would love to uh, talk with him about these things. I mean so much of our waking day we're as if semi-conscious or in a daydream. Even if we're not daydreaming, we seem to have some kind of veil of illusion clouding our sights, our view,
2: our
1: direct perception of, quote, reality, if we dare to use such a word. The Hindus say life is a dream. Maya Leela, Maya Devi Lila, the goddess, life's dreamlike dance. The Buddhists say life is like a dream. Not that it is a dream, but it's like a dream. And we can't really say what it is or isn't but there's a notion of dreamlike ephemeral transience and impermanence. And there are many kinds of dreams, even the night dream, we could wake up and know we're dreaming while we're asleep. So, Ian, tell us about your research or what you're interested in now, either what your leading, cutting-edge research is, or what you think is the most important point that we could talk about explore together and uh, think about going forward?
2: Well, good morning or good afternoon. Uh, We're on opposite ends of the world here today. So thank you for having me on, Lama So yeah, my name is uh, Ian Dunican. I'm a sleep researcher and I also work in the area of sleep performance. Um, So my background has kind of developed across through military mining, industrial applications, and most recently then with elite athletes looking at sleep and performance. Now, I suppose going forward to your, to your, uh, to your quote earlier is uh, where are we heading with some of the sleep research? And from numerous conversations with yourself, Lama Souridas, I am happy to start openly discussing. We have some new studies in development in relation to meditation and sleep. Oh, great. Yeah. So the last time we spoke... Um, do I have to oh, go to sleep
1: to, to study this, or is this part of my awakening a mission?
2: Oh, you're not the first person no. to make these sleep, sleep jokes to me, so I'm um, oh, I've heard them all. Well. i got to keep rolling here. I'd be good. So, um, one of the things uh, that we spoke, about, we spoke about before is my sort of uh, entry into this path of Buddhism in the last six months. And undertaken a meditation retreat, albeit for only three days, but had some significant breakthroughs on that retreat in terms of how I felt, how calm I was, how good my sleep had got, how little sleep I needed over that weekend. And uh, through exploration and conversations with yourself, I have contacted our local Buddhist Society of Western Australia, I think the biggest Buddhist Society here in Australia under Ajahn Bran, who was under uh, Ajahn Cha of Thailand, which Jack Hornfield was with as well. And now myself and one of the monks are discussing a potential sleep study on those people doing a 10-day silent retreat, which we have been speaking to with the local university here, uh, which I have an adjunct position with. So we are going to start looking at the the positive benefits of meditation on sleep, because many people report these, and uh, I've had many discussions with uh, one of the monks here in the in the monastery. Many people report these benefits, but they haven't really been studied in this applied setting of, of a retreat. So that's kind of where we're going to start heading now with um, some research in 2019.
1: That's exciting. How many people um, are you going to have... You know, in like the initial study or in the initial retreat, since you mentioned the 10-day retreat, it sounds like a selected group rather than like studying all the, you know, first year students at the college or something.
2: (laughs) Well, that is one of the downfalls of lots of laboratory-based university students. Is you get everybody looking for a a uh, ten-dollar fee, you get a ten-dollar voucher for the for the cafeteria. So you kind of you're selecting your recruitment and selection is a bit skewed. Um, So one of the great things about the Buddhist Society Western Australia here in Perth is um, that they have a retreat center, approximately about a mile away from the monastery, which is purpose purpose built for lay people and, and sort of spiritual adventures like myself where we can go and everybody's got their own room, their own ensuite. It's got a big meditation hall. You know, it's kind of this perfect segregated uh, community yeah. where people can go to do it. Um, and so these retreats book out really quick. And they can hold up to 60 people in one of those. So we'll ha- we should have some sizable numbers. And if if we don't get enough numbers in one retreat, then what we can do is we can continuously recruit, maybe get 20 in one retreat, mm-hmm. 20 better, and so on. Because each retreat follows the same pattern. So we get this lovely before the retreat, during the retreat and after the retreat. Um, and they run like maybe six of these retreats a year and they get sold out within like a half an hour. So... I don't think we should have any problem recruiting people. Um, you know, and our methods of, of measuring sleep are pretty, uh, pretty passive. So um, we're hoping to see that the, um, the meditation retreat, silent meditation, actually helps people improve sleep. Now, many people report needing less sleep. And I think people like yourself have reported this as well in meditation. You need kind of less sleep as you go on. But what we're really interested in looking at is actually the quality of the sleep. So do people feel better over the time? with less sleep, but there's better quality. So less awakenings, quicker to fall asleep, less fragmentation to sleep. So it'll be an interesting area to look at um, uh, the quality.
1: Yeah, more deep REM cycles or deeper sleep, understanding yeah. sleep and so on. That's exciting. So who'd be leading these retreats and what style retreats are they? Like you mentioned Achan Brahm. By the way, I'll give him a shout out because he's a great guy and he has some very good books, including funny books. Yeah. which we will appreciate being in the spiritual side of life. You know, we don't want to get too serious about it. Isn't he the one that wrote the book called Who Brought This Load of Dung in Here?
2: I I think he might be, yeah, I because he tells a lot. Wrong.
1: He's very learned. He's also very, very funny.
2: Yeah, I think he's an astrophysicist originally. He? Yeah, yeah, it's,
1: it's he brought the load of dung into our lives, which is funny yeah. for a <laughs> monk. He's a very pure monk. <laughs> yeah. it, so good for him. Um, is he going to be teaching them and uh, are these experienced meditators or beginners or all kinds that you're measuring the sleep of during the 10 day retreat
2: yeah it's, that's a good point so the, the teacher we're not we haven't locked in the actual time yet so we're still in the development phase but um, Ajahn Brahm does lead some of the retreats as do some other monks um, so that might be variable and sometimes it could be numerous teachers on the retreat with one lead teacher but it's a good point. There will be experienced meditators there will be sort of intermediate and beginners as well. So we're going to have to kind of band these or group these, these people and to see the effect on it because we're probably thinking that most people who are experienced meditators are going to get a big improvement very quickly. But, and then, you know, the beginners might take a bit more time. But in saying that, one of the monks I've been dealing with, he's actually an Irish monk, Buddha Akita, in discussions. He's actually got a PhD in chemistry, but a healthy interest in neuroscience as well and we were discussing this last week on a a nice big walk around the forest down there, which was you might get beginner's luck. You might get somebody that's going to maybe behave Mm -hmm. like an experienced meditator straight away because some people just maybe... You know naturally attuned to this and and reaching these good states and like you say we'll go straight into like deep sleep straight away or maybe they'll have more light sleep whatever it might be we don't really know so it's going to be really interesting to see how people behave in this more applied setting as opposed to in a laboratory where we just have somebody meditate for a while and, and put into an fMRI or some EEG. So it would be really interesting to see this kind of longitudinal thing over the 10 day period, but also before and after to see do they kind of get better during the retreat, but then after the retreat, do they kind of just go straight back to what they were or are those benefits locked in? Because we know from other studies or other research, like oh, Barbara, Barbara Fredericks and stuff, is that when people give or when there's positive psychology, you know, that those results kind of can and the benefits can be locked in for many months afterwards. So will we get mm-hmm. the same from this meditation retreat, you know, where people will feel will feel so much better.
1: Well, I hope so. Um, you know, we're, we're all interested in neuroscience and what how it can help inform our understanding and, you know, improve our methods for physical wellness as well as spiritual, emotional, and you know, mental health and all. Um, it seems to me that a lot of people have real sleep problems, so even meditation teachers, so um, it wouldn't be a bad thing if we could uh, tune up our inner probing and inquiry and understand this a lot better and um, you know balance like body and energy and spirit and mind and heart in a way that we can really uh, replenish our vehicle every night. Yeah. And not people sleep all the time during the day, or drinking pots of coffee all day. Somebody was telling me the other day, I was studying, you know, about caffeine or so in, in medical school, and uh, many of us who are health conscious, or you know, maybe vegetarian or vegan or eat organically we think about or are concerned about how many cups of coffee we drink, or do we drink it or not, or do we drink one cup in the morning only. But most coffee drinkers drink it by the pot because they used to be maize in pots. So they're just drinking 10, 20, 30 cups of coffee a day without even thinking about it. And also in um, diet sodas and things like that, the caffeine. So no wonder why people have sleep problems, not to mention anxiety, jitters and nerves.
2: Yeah, this, this is an interesting point. And this is some of the research I did with elite athletes here in Australia that were elite Olympians or people who played at a high level for rugby union. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because one of my studies actually was on caffeine and the effect of caffeine on um, sleep after a competition. And another study I did as well was around electronic device use in combat athletes um, with judo players. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an interesting thing in a silent meditation um, or any sort of meditation particularly when we take people out of the sort of the normal world, so to speak, when we can. Silent meditation
1: can be a combat sport, you know,
2: it can be against yourself.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ego. It might not even be in the same weight class as your ego. It could be so big.
2: Well, it's funny you say that because recently I've been doing a lot of yoga the last six months, a lot of Hatha yoga, like four or five times a week. And the teacher said to me last week, how'd you find that class today, Ian? And I said, you know, yoga, I said, is like going into a fight. And she goes, what? No, it's very peaceful. I said, no, it's like going into a fight. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, every time I come here, I'm fighting with myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and she goes, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> so... You know, this goes a long way. But go on, you were talking about your caffeine studies. Caffeine. Ca- you know. I'm just talking about going to the coffee shop.
2: <laughs> so if we, if we look at coffee, you're dead right. Like people are consuming, uh, you know, lots of caffeine during the day to help them stay awake, you know, throughout the day, they're kind of using it as, a, as a drip feed or kind of microdosing throughout the day right. to, get them, to okay. get them through sleep there. And we know that from uh, studies in America or here in Australia, that one in three people are chronically sleep deprived. So people are using this ergogenic aid to keep themselves awake. The problem with that though is that when you consume caffeine, you know, habitually like this, it's going to keep you awake at night. And particularly if you're consuming it within like four to five hours before bed, because it's going to affect your sleep overnight. And many people have coffee after dinner as well. So on these meditation retreats, are people going to consume less caffeine? It's going to be of interest as well. As time goes on, do people consume less coffee? Does that have an impact on their sleep? Is that going to improve it? Because we know when people go off coffee, you know, after a kind of washout period, there's definitely improvement on sleep. But the biggest thing I think is the use of electronic devices and external stimulus. Now there's varying degrees of uh, results from the use of electronic devices across general population to elite athletes and so on, in terms of how that affects your ability to fall asleep. But I think what's more important or what's really interesting to look at is not even electronic device use, but it's the activity before bed. Now, I know that in sort of the Western world, this is becoming more and more prevalent across all sorts of groups where people are coming home after work, you know, they're having dinner, they're bathing their kids, putting them to bed, reading a story. And most parents then are jumping back on email for two hours before they go to bed to try and catch up on stuff that they might have missed out on during the day, or we have this 24-7 society. Now, it's not so much even electronic like device use there that's the issue. It's a type of activity because you get a, a, you know, a frustrating email from a boss, from somebody else, it makes you angry. It's going to raise cortisol. Cortisol has this inverse relationship with melatonin, which is kind of a sleep hormone, and so if melatonin is suppressed and cortisol is high, you're going to find it extremely difficult to fall asleep and even stay asleep. So I think with these silent meditation retreats, it's not even just a meditation. It's the removal from all this other sort of kind of crap that we do in our lives every day. So it's like kind of a, such as a spiritual detox. It's a, it's a sort of electronic detox as well.
1: Well, you're thinking about the electronic angle, uh, naturally not being a scientist and lab research or... Um It seems to me that when you go into retreat, you know, it's really not just removing from the electronic static, but the work, what you're talking about is work with the boss and stress and other things and messaging, but, uh, you know, other kinds of input and stimulation. TV, you know, the the screen, the handheld, surfing the web, social media, Uh, All the stuff, you know, reading the news, which is mostly the bad news. You know, if it bleeds, it reads. So it's mostly the bad news. There's not much uh, reported in the news of the good miracles and beautiful things that are happening in the world. So I think going to retreat can, uh, you know, release a lot of stress and tension of all kinds. Of course, taking a – doing a – electronic fast or a grid fast media fast for a day you can do even in your regular life and see how that affects you like on a sunday just detach from the cell phone and you know the laptop and the radio or the music in the car whatever you listen to your mp thing three thing i think that you know this kind of fast is very uh, healthy just like food fasting or juice fasting uh, can be
2: Yeah, and even sort of um, in in non sort of, let's say, meditative environments like we've been discussing here today, there's another great study that was completed up in uh, Colorado by Kenneth Wright um, from the University of Colorado where it actually took a bunch of teens into the the woods for I think it was 21 days. So they had no electronic devices. They were out there in natural light, natural dark cycles. Mm -hmm. And guess what happened? Stress reduced, sleep increased. They went to bed when it got dark. They got up when it got bright all indices of, you know, self-reported happiness and, you know, all went up. So, you know, I think, I think you're dead right. There's something in doing even at home, a digital detox for a few days, or even if you can't completely do it is at least reducing the amount of time that we spend on it because we're com- we're completely locked into it. You know, you talk about Buddhism and the hungry ghost realm. I look at my phone sometimes and I call that the hungry ghost because that's dragging me into hell sometimes. <laughs>
1: Well, right. that is the kind of thing we think about it. in Buddhism or Dharma. The symbolic ghosts like addiction, yeah and overwhelming need and craving desire or um, inner conflict of fighting with ourselves and our own demons, not something Sorry. else. And that's why the realm of the mind or consciousness or spirit is so rich and interesting, and if we have ways of exploring there mechanical ways and also more subtle mental ways we can do make a great voyage into the inner space and find a lot i mean the, the tibetans have a saying everything we seek is within so that's something to explore
2: well it's interesting lama sorry that's because our very first uh conversation we were speaking about different things in my podcast about reincarnation and so on and you said, watch The Unmistaken Child. I watched The Unmistaken Child. I saw the the, the monk who was looking for him, Tenzin Zopa. I put his name into Google. A couple of weeks later, Tenzin Zopa was here in Perth teaching a one-day one workshop. Where did I go last Saturday? To a one-day workshop with Tenzin Zopa. And so people said, what brought you here? And I told a story. And people went, wow. But Tenzin Zopa, really, one of the things I remember about his, his workshop last week, and it was this great workshop for like six hours, um, he spoke about grasping or clinging, you know, and you're sitting there in this great kind of psychedelic room in this Buddhist center here in Perth. And you're at <laughs> and it was great. Like when you tune out from the teacher, it's great because you can just look at the wall. And yeah. then when you tune out from the pictures, you can tune back into the teacher. That's what I like about Tibetan Buddhism. There's always something to look at in the room. <laughs> um, you know, and so with this, uh, with this teaching, he was talking about gras- uh, grasping or clinging to things, you know. And to constantly, he was talking about a cup, you know, but, and I was looking up at the hungry ghost realms and the wall and the, the whole wheel and, you know, um, but what I was thinking about was how we do cling and grasp to things like electronic like devices in our life. And we do cling and grasp to the internet and all these external things. And yes. we don't try to self-reflect or find this happiness within. We're constantly looking for an external stimulus.
1: Right. Well, that's a kind of addiction and, you know, it's hard to stop and take a break. Um, I think that's, if we're going to stay with the sleep subject, you know, a lot of people say they can't fall asleep at night because they can't turn their mind off or they can't stop thinking would be, you know, a more literal way of saying it. And of course, there are ways to do that by breathing and meditation and relaxing and concentrating or listening to music or white noise or a pink noise I heard is a new designation for really healthy healing sound. It's not just white noise, pink noise, like the sound of the ocean is different than white noise. Apparently it has more uh, sound nu- nutrition somehow, according to some article I read lately, I think it's it a time. magazine, but you never know. There's always some alternative facts, no doubt. days. De- <laughs> But it, but it, everything you read, or worse, you can't believe everything you think, Ian.
2: Well, that's that's true. Yeah, I think it was uh, Stephen Hawking who who when he's postdoctoral were completely destroyed his own PhD thesis and proved <laughs> it wrong. So you know that's 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 the it's great funny. thing. I'm I'm always looking to be proved wrong by myself, not by anybody else. <laughs> that's
1: so gross. that's so gross. good. For you.
2: <laughs> But this whole thing about meditation is pretty interesting, and I've been listening to lots of podcasts on this um, and lots of talks on that, and um, the more I listen, the more I hear. and it's uh, you know it's interesting from a Tibetan Buddhism thing, uh, side if you want to kind of correlate back to 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 your area, is that the Dalai Lama said that there is no better meditation than sleep, which was quite a powerful statement, and I was like, so he's placing so much emphasis on 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 sleep, but also in talking to Buddha Rikida here in Western Australia. Um, he also speaks about that the Buddha, you know, talks about insomnia in a different way, that the benefits of meditation, the benefits of Buddhism is to, you know, help you get to sleep. It helps you stay asleep and also stops you from waking up early in the morning, which really are three t- the three types of sleep insomnia that we have. We've got sleep onset insomnia sleep maintenance insomnia and early wake insomnia, so to speak. So they're the three types of insomnia that are classified in the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Now, that's, you know, that's two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha said that. And so I'm sure these things have been around and we haven't reinvented them or invented them ourselves. But it's interesting that those things have yeah. been spoken about, you know, through the, through the time. And then the other one I've been looking at is that, or listening about, is that sleep. And this, I think, was listening to Robert Thurman and so on is a preparation to enter the bar doors when we die. Mm-hmm. And so that the whole thing about sleep is just really a practice for us to embrace our death when the time comes, which is a very novel area that we haven't looked at in sleep research. And I think this whole side is ripe for opportunity in, in the sleep research for us. Yes,
1: well, they say that, that you know falling asleep is the little death and we can rehearse our death every night by doing sleep yoga and dream yoga and lucid dreaming and all And prepare to go into the Bardo consciously rather than unconsciously driven, wherever our conditioning or karma takes us. There's a lot to learn there. Some of it's encoded or even explicit in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and there are other practices like the dark meditation practices and other things like that that we can do. Uh, In our three-year retreat, Lama training, uh, I can't remember if we talked about this before. I sat up in a uh, we we sat up all night that's traditional in in like a meditation box instead of a bed so we were kind of sleeping lightly and it's easier to awaken in the dream and know you're dreaming when you wake up in the morning it's not the same kind of pulling yourself out from the depths when you sleep sitting up not that i'm recommending it to any of our dear friends or listeners kind of what yogic austerity Prevent but um, I found it very useful, especially for lucid dreaming and staying consciously awake while falling asleep and going through the stages of first hypnagogic images on the back of your eyelids, which is like half asleep and half awake. And then, you, you know, you go into the kind of unconscious or semi-conscious dark, let's say, but there's still like an inner light that you can know or see by. If we practice doing that, they say that then we can do that when the big death comes, when you stop breathing, when it's time to go on with your let's say, uh spiritual journey or your more subtle journey when your body this body is done.
2: Yeah. No, I think it's I think it's really interesting. And we haven't really seen much of that in the literature at the moment from a scientific perspective, you know, about the interrelationship between sleep and death and the Bardo's and so on. Um, and I think sometimes, as scientists, uh, the scientific community, it's very easy to kind of dismiss the philosophy, religious side of these things, but it's definitely an area that, you know, needs to be probably researched more, I think. Um, I think a
1: lot of, kind of the of community and, you know, is coming to, uh, together, more, more overlap, more interface, more co- fertiliz- fertilization with the spiritual community and the religious community too. The popes um, had meetings with the heads of many of the religions and talk about these things for days in detail, not just, you know, one day with his... Re- main religious advisor uh, representative has and uh, a lot of us are doing that Um, maybe you could foment some sleep research into this little death that bob thurman was talking about at night and get some people to um experience that or you know and test them like you are with these 10-day meditation retreats or somebody you know related to you could or one of your graduate students or colleagues it's a great it's a great subject
2: yeah no, definitely, yeah. There's definitely, um, there's definitely opportunity here. I think to do lots of different things. But um, we're, we're going to start with this meditation retreat next year, and hopefully we can start to see some benefits uh, from this.
1: Yes, and to Ben. Book of the dead some is explicit and we read it to the de- dying or dead person um, and some of it's more implicit or coded needs to be explained by the oral tradition or the yogis in fact uh ian just to blow your mind since we're talking about research you know in in tibetan buddhist tradition we have we means the tradition has in general a way of continuing to be conscious and meditate after death. So that's why Bob Thurman was uh, talking like that about falling asleep, because you can prepare for this. And um, somebody even sent me a picture the other day uh, through an e- email or text from India of an old Tibetan meditation master who was sitting up and meditating uh, some days after his body stopped breathing, in other words, clinical death. And he was still pink and uh, rosy cheeked and not. Um, the ter- the body was not deteriorating, so I think there's a lot of room here for expanding the paradigm of you know who we are and what we are and where we co- you know when we start and when we're done, or is there a continuity and is it all you know connected to the source to the one? We start to really identify more with the oneness rather than the separateness, and then we'll have less fear also of falling asleep or of dying. Um, these people exist. I've met some of them. I saw two meditating for 10 or 12 days after they died when I was in India, the great Deja Rinpoche, and um, I forget which one the other one was. And uh, it was it's, it's very true. Um, the University of Wisconsin guys, Richie Davidson is trying to put FMRIs on their heads, but to get the equipment to the people in these places is uh, usually a big challenge. But yeah. the interesting thing is the consciousness seems to still inhabit the body, even though the body is not uh, breathing. And there may or may not be mental activity, which is what they're trying to research. But as it's a uh, practical for us, I think it's something that we can do every night as we're going to sleep and, see what's going on within ourselves as we're falling asleep, like gaze into the light behind your eyelids and go to sleep conscious, fall asleep consciously and relax into it. It might help you fall asleep, stay asleep and wake up more rested. As you said, the Buddha said.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's important to, to probably know as well. Lama am sorry, to ask, is that in the sleep science community, we still don't know what the purpose of sleep is. <laughs> we still don't That's know surprising. like yeah, we, we people kind of go well what's the one answer like what's what's a four and what's the cheat code and what's the silver bullet we don't we don't really know like the whole kind of sleep world wasn't really explored well it was in little bits like so originally like uh, socrates and people like this philosophers said that sleep was only because of food so we have food and the vapors from the food went up into our travel up through our body, we did through our head and made us fall asleep. That was some of the original concepts behind what sleep was. It was a a response to food and probably because people felt tired after lunch. Um, But, you know, it's only the late 50s, early 60s that we really started to understand what sleep stages was. So you talk about REM sleep, light sleep, deep sleep. We only knew this in the early 60s. Mm. You know, um, research into sleep then has been very much a kind of reverse engineering type. What happens if we take away one night of sleep? What happens if we take away the first part of sleep, which is predominantly non-REM sleep, which is physical repair? What happens at the end of the night if we take away REM, which is really re- important for recovering you know, of, the, of the brain, really? So we know, we know if we give too much caffeine, take away caffeine, it's all this kind of, you know, looking for these little bits of cause and effect. But the overarching thing or the overarching goal of sleep we still don't have a consensus. We know that it's important for different reasons. We know if we don't have it, we gain weight. We have obesity because uh, leptin and ghrelin levels in our body get kind of screwed up. We also know then that if we don't get enough sleep, that it can lead to mental uh, health issues such as depression, anxiety, giddiness, whatever it might be. It can make pre-existing issues worse. We also know from a performance perspective, whether it be physical or cognitive, that we're going to have impairment as well. So, We know all these things can happen from it, but we still don't know or can't say why we have sleep. So I think it's still really interesting as a society, you know, that we don't know, but also we should be exploring all these other parts that are related to sleep. And one of the benefits of sleep, and I suppose the relationship with death, for example, in a Buddhist context is, this is one of these great experiments, because if we don't find out in an experiment, we're going to find out very soon ourselves when we die. So we'll know the answer sooner or later. <laughs> well, the
1: Dalai Lama said he's, gonna, he's, he's kind of not rushing, but he's kind of looking forward to the day he dies. He's very interested to see what happens from a sort of scientific and philosophical or existential point of view. That that was pretty amusing and interesting.
2: But he's got the, he's got the comfort of knowing he's coming back. Well, <laughs> he's been around the clock a few times. He's okay, that's,
1: that's <laughs> fine. But we probably have too. Don't don't push don't push it further away than it is from you.
2: So here's a question, Lama. Sorry, that uh, I did discuss last week on one of these great. Models. I just want to
1: reiterate that point I just made for all listeners. Don't put <laughs> it, whatever it is that you know you seek any further away from you than you already feel. <laughs> like by saying the Dalai Lama, oh well, he, you know, but not us. Um, <laughs> That's a form of sleep, or or amnesia, or even identity theft. Identity theft. <laughs> yeah, so we we seem to have lost our true self somewhere in this. That's one of the main goals of Buddhism is to see who we are. You know, what what we're doing here and how we fit in.
2: A question I do have for you on the relationship with sleep, um, which from a Buddhist perspective would be interesting, because I had a very good conversation with one of the monks here last week when we were on this nice big walk around the forest, is about with rebirth or, or karma or you know, coming back into a into a new life. Is there any relationship there with sleep in terms of remembering through the lucid dreaming? And, you know, I've listened to your audio book on tibetan dream yoga which is quite interesting and like i've said before in my podcast if you don't want to do dream yoga buy the audiobook because the stories alone are brilliant so (laughs) if you're looking for some funny stories and the way to work listen to these they're good but is is there any way here we know that people will remember past lives through let's say meditative practices some Mm -hmm. focus on it they may undergo hypnotherapy. Is there any way through the practice of dream yoga and sleep that people may be able to recover memories of these past lives?
1: I think some people do in sleep. And that's one of the um, passageways or portals where we go beyond our consensus reality and um, out of our habitual, let's say, left brain rational framework and we're more in touch with our innate intuition or psychic powers or you know something the, the timeless time that's beyond relative, conventional past, present and future, and we might remember our past lives, or uh, we might see our late parents or friends in the dream. I mean, we all know about the latter. So that's already a little outside of time. And there's no time really in the psyche. It's all simultaneous. So some people have remembered their past lives. Um, while, while sleeping. In fact, I might be wrong about this, but I think the great American psychic Edgar Cayce uh, realized his past lives and some things about this while he was sleeping, where he woke up to his psychic abilities while he was sleeping, while he was sick. But uh, don't quote me on it. We could look this up. The great Edgar Casey, a very remarkable case in history of a psychic healer with natural abilities that he developed, uh, you know, that came to him. When he was an adult already, and I think so the dreams are part of that. As for for myself, you know, having worked in the uh, Hindu yoga and Buddhist Dzogchen and other uh, mahamudra mudras tradition, we work a lot with thing, concepts or like realities. Let's say uh, I- inner abilities like the clear light, the inner light, the incan the mystic heat, the incandescent tumo, the in- inner clear light, and um use dreams to see portents and omens of the future, we'll look back in the past, and I don't know, we're advised not to talk about these things because people misunderstand them, or we do, or it becomes like some kind of ego thing. But um, I, I've had some experiences, to tell you the truth, if I was gonna speak candidly, I, as we're alone here, you and I, Ian, and What's on my podcast? Days on my podcast. No, no one, no one's listening anyway, so it's okay. No, no, no one's even talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had some visions and experiences that I remember I was sitting up in our three-year retreat, so at night in meditation posture, with sleeping. I'm not sure if I was awake and meditating, you know, meditating in lucid dreaming, or dreaming, but the experiences of my past, let's say, or of other realms of exist being or of the divine were so real that it kind of overawed or, or like tru- trumped, I hate to use this word, excuse me, it, it trumped the ordinary realities of, of course, you know, those people are dead or they're far away or heaven isn't exactly here in my monk's cell even though it could be, but it trumped all that ordinary consciousness and presented, you know, a whole alternative reality, a way of being that's uh, undergirding and overarching and containing it all, like a bigger context that was undeniable. Yeah. So I think, like, that's why in lucid dreaming we can do things like f- fly or uh, visit other parts of the world and do things that's kind of like a virtual reality thing online because we're not limited by being identified with our physical body and its socialized limitations that we know about of course in the dream we're not really flying our body's still lying there like a log in bed but um our spirit is soaring let's not lose the metaphor here flight (laughs) of the mind and the, third so, way, the luminosity is free The great, the, you know The infinite Whatever we call it The divine The great transparent eyeball Is clear and radiant
2: So when we um, when, that Last question I asked you about past lives With sleep One thing that struck me It was quite interesting Watching a documentary recently And I cannot remember the name of it But it was an Italian Tibetan kid who was born, um, it was a documentary made about what, I cannot yes, I I it. I can't remember, yes. I think it was
1: called Tulku, wasn't it? About Nam Nobu Rinpoche's son, no, which, in Italy and recognized as a reincarnation. Thul-
2: I thought Tulku was the one where Chogam Trumpa Rinpoche's son that was that one where he mm-hmm. went to India, but the other one was the I was
1: Italian- confused, they're all called Rinpoche.
2: yeah it's like it's like being called o'brien in ireland um yeah there's only two of them i know (laughs) i know him yeah yeah it's so funny sometimes here sometimes here in australia people go do you know you know john murray i'm like actually i do yeah (laughs) of all the five million people i actually do know him but um in this documentary it spoke about this italian kid whose dad was Tibetan and his mother was Italian. And he had a, you could see in the documentary he had a bit of trouble with his dad and Buddhism. But um, he was sort of, he wasn't really kind of into it. He was a bit standoffish. His dad was, you know, a famous teacher. But anyway, you know, as the documentary progressed, it's really interesting to watch. He, he was a tulku or a reincarnation. But as, a, as the documentary progressed, you could see that he was becoming kind of more engaged in, in Buddhism. And then when he went to, I believe it was a part of Nepal or India. I can't remember now. I've watched so many documentaries recently. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he he started actually going, oh, that's the stupa I remember. That's the pagoda. That's the blah, blah, blah. And they were like, what do you mean remember? It was only built two Mm -hmm. years ago. So he was dreaming about when he was younger, he was Mm -hmm. having these dreams, which weren't about past life, but actually about what he was going to do in the future. And it right. was so like, so like portents
1: oh. and omens, foresight—it's a yeah. sight ability.
2: So he was pointing out these things in the room. Oh, that used to be over there, and this used to be here, and people mm-hmm. were going, yeah. And even though he'd never been there, and he was at this kind of uh, Tibetan-Italian mm-hmm. mix, but he was the reincarnation of a famous, you know, Rinpoche or Lama that had escaped. Master, yeah, yeah. So it was—it's quite interesting. Not only oh, maybe can we use sleep to go back into past lives, but also can we start looking about what's going to happen, you know? So, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people as well, outside of, let's say, any spiritual practice, will talk about having a dream or a nightmare or people will say, for example, I dreamt my teeth fell out. That's a sign of like from sort of Freud and Jung, that's a sign that you're going to be betrayed at work. And then within two weeks, people go, oh, you know what happened? I had this dream a few weeks ago my teeth were falling out. And then some guy at work stabbed me in the back and I got in trouble with my boss. Yeah. So I think sometimes there's these subtle cues in our dreams, you know, whether, yes. it's, whether it's from the subconscious environment we're soaking up during the day that's coming true in our dreams or there's something else at play here that we don't even know about.
1: Yes, I think so. Um, some of both, especially the latter, Ian. And I, I've seen this sometimes with children too. They tell you stuff from their dreams and it's a pretty amazing you know, the, the psychic, innate psychic intuitive abilities they have before we socialize it out of them with school and all trying to give the same answer and so on and memorize it. Um, and and, and uh, follow the norms. Yeah. It, it, we try to go deeper or see through the nature of light and dark or awakening and sleeping. So like you could be aware while you're falling asleep, that'll be a particular advanced meditation instruction. Not just if you're nodding off, try to breathe a few times or splash water on your face to wake up, but actually stay aware and notice note or notice yourself falling asleep. And then you're like the witness of that rather than Mm -hmm. falling asleep yourself. And that can help you a lot to be more conscious all the time. And into the dream and into the afterlife, and direct your path in this life and the next, or so they say. And I found that, that 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 to be true, although, you know, I can't remember, I can't vouch for the total veracity of a rebirth and reincarnation. I think we have some, probably some limited understandings about that. But definitely, I, I feel it's true that. What goes around comes around, and everything is interconnected. And the reason I mention this is maybe I can't see into the future, but one of Buddha's sayings has always stuck with me, which is: if you want to know what you were in the last life, look at how you are now. <laughs> if you want to know what you're going to be in the next life, look at what you're doing, thinking, and being, and intending now. Yeah. Yeah. So cause yeah. and effect. You know what goes Causes around comes around. Oh, yeah. Karma. Yeah. So, I, I think that's a. I think a that's a great. great, great, great definition prediction of karma and even remembering.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great definition of karma. Too many people get caught up with karma as some sort of spiritual external force. And you know, talking to to my friend here at the local monastery, Buddha Rikita, karma is just cause and effect, exactly what you said. And if you believe in cause and effect in your daily life, you know that's, that's just karma. That's the simple, simple version of what karma is. And I think yes. uh, you know, in the scientific community or engineering community, people understand this and believe in it. So. You yeah. know
1: yes, well, the scientific some scientists who are cocascetic or sympathetic, they say, "Oh, it sounds a little bit like Newton's second law of thermodynamics. I don't know if I'm getting the right one, but you know there's no reaction there's no action without a reaction in kind and things like that. Energy is yeah. neither created nor destroyed. it's just passed the law, moved along,
2: changes form,
1: yeah. So yeah. that's very congruent with this idea of karma. Just like it says in the Bible, we reap what we sow. So that's a good way to understand, I, I believe, how to... Uh, anyway, this is our Eastern thought belief. How to direct our life and our society and our relations and our world in a better way by what we do and think and intend and you know what we co-create now.
2: Yeah.
1: Not just hoping or hiding our heads in the sand like an ostrich and having our rear end up in the storm and hoping the storm will blow over. Well, we're kind of contributing to the storm somehow, dropping shit on the environment, et cetera. So I think today uh, people feel kind of helpless, it seems to me, or a lack of agency in these regards about these big questions, like the environment and wars and corruption and so on and i think we really have to try to individually and collectively awaken together and take the steering wheel of karma in our hands and pl- learn to plant better and cultivate truer and, and better and, and and what did michelle obama say when they go low we go high <laughs> and live and you know, assume the high ground Identify one with our best selves, not have our best selves stolen from us by socialization and get drummed into being one just one more competitive, or greedy, or deceptive, uh, selfish, egotist.
2: One of the one of the great things Lambsuri does is about the thing about sleep is that sleep is free; it's available to everybody. It doesn't discriminate generally. And if we can get more focus on our quantity and quality of sleep, and place more focus on it, even if we make some small improvements on it, it's going to help us perform better during the day in terms of, you know, cognition, our decision making, our rational approach to life, which actually leads nicely into what you're saying, because you know, when people sleep good, let's be honest, yeah, we if, if feel we're less of an asshole during the day. That's what yeah. happens. You know, we know that people get very grumpy when they don't get sleep. And some yeah. people will just turn around and say, look, I didn't have a good night's sleep last night. So if we can have better sleep and feel better during the day, we can maybe more rationally approach these things like environment, sustainability, working together, being collective, being engaged, you know, working on all these other things. But if yeah, we're constantly arts, deprived, people, yeah. not so irritable. Yeah. But if we're constantly sleep deprived and constantly looking for some stimulus to keep us awake to just get through the day, whether it be sugar or caffeine. Well, then we're never going to be able to get through to the next level. So we need to, in some ways, we advance as a society, as a society but in other, other ways, like we're regressing in terms of, you know, our focus on health in sleep and well-being and our cognitive performance. So these things really, you know, are mutually beneficial.
1: Well, the Buddhist Hindu uh, worldview is more of cyclical rather than linear. So and people like often ask me, is everybody going to be enlightened in the end, or get to Nirvana or heaven? And that's not our way of thinking, really, but more seeing the cycles of life, like the seasons, yeah. going round and round, and lifting ourselves up where we are, or being deeper at people as we are, and opening our hearts to it all. Now. Yeah. And not waiting for Messiah to come later or, you know, when the world ends or doesn't end or eternity begins. It's so theological. That, leave that to theologians. But um, since you mentioned sleep is important for mental and emotional stability and health, I notice some people go crazy, literally insane, if they don't get enough sleep. And that's very sad. One of my friends, dear old mother, who was sane, wonderful, lovey mother her whole life, went crazy in her 60s from, I don't know if it was badly treated and managed or it was just inevitable, from um, weak sleep treatment. And she just got worse and worse and more and more yeah. um, insomnia and uh, the drugs and... Uh, the upset and the changes and the side effects, and she, you know, was insane. She ended up living in a, a an asylum because, of, I mean, the doctors' diagnosis—they watched it happen—was sleep deprivation. Yeah, it was so sad. And then they, they they said, you know, this is a phenomena. It's well known, and sometimes it shows up as other diseases or um, p- mental pathology, psychopathology, but. um, Sleep is so important. These days, we're saying the seven hours is a good amount to sleep, and most Americans sleep five or six. Yeah, uh, deprived people used to say eight hours was the right number, but it seems to me it's kind of personal, just like how much you exercise or eat or think or other things. What do you think,
2: Ian? Well. So 95% of the population or more are going to fall between seven and nine hours required. Many Westerners, particularly in places like Australia, Western Europe, and in America, will oh. say, oh, that's crap. I get by in five hours sleeping. You yeah. know, I feel, just, I feel just great. Less than 1% of the population can actually properly function on five hours sleep or less a night. The challenge is that many people are just getting five hours and they're just scraping through the day. and so. We it's very hard for us as humans to objectively measure our performance, you know, because we just normalize and we know from numerous laboratory studies or field based studies, those people who said need five hours, if we actually declutter their life, get rid of all this other stimulus like we spoke about at the start, and we get them having eight hours sleep, they jump out of bed the next morning and they're like, Wow, I never felt so good. So, you know, many people are just scraping by. So most people should need between seven and nine hours sleep, and you're right, it's very personal. Now, in saying that, if you get a bad night's sleep, six hours here, six hours another night, that's okay. It's not going to be perfect every night. So it's this balance of having a focus on your sleep, but not getting too stressed, you know. And I think this <laughs> is a great this this is a great time as well, Lama that's to plug some of my free resources, which is if people are, if people are interested. You can go to sleep the number four performance. So sleepforperformance.com.au. There's a website there that's got blogs, articles, links out to my TV appearances on YouTube. I have a TEDx part talk that I did last year called Sleep In and Win. There's also a podcast called Sleep for Performance Radio, which you were on recently. And we're in we're coming to the end of season two. That's available on Podbean and iTunes completely free. There's free books there to download as well. Uh, lots of free information. So you can jump on there and grab what you want. You can follow me on Twitter at Sleep4Perform or on Instagram, Sleep4Perform. And all of these things are covered in great depth. So if any of your listeners would like to kind of, um, you know, jump on the podcast and try to listen for tips and tricks to improve their sleep, to maybe help their spiritual practice, there's lots of stuff here that they can do. And if there is a specific question, they can fire the questions to me because if I get enough questions, I often do a special episode where I address those listener questions as well. So there's lots of free information out here that we can use to help people in their spiritual practice and in their daily work life, whether it be you know, a stay-at-home parent, they're in a corporate job, they're studying, they're traveling, just to help them get the, the most out of life and really you know, live life to their um, full health and potential that they can do.
1: Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, many of us have had sleep issues. What about you? How would you get interested in this? Do you have a sleep issue or do you sleep seven to nine hours a night, old chap?
2: Well, <laughs> old chap, young buck. Um, yeah, so I generally tend to get between seven and nine hours on average. Uh, to answer your question about how I got into it, I started my career off in the military as a soldier and I was always interested in why I felt crap with no sleep and people were like, you can just train yourself to get by on no sleep, which I always thought was, you know, not true. Um, then when I left the military, I worked in health and safety for a long time. And in my own personal life, um, I like to undertake crazy events. So I used to, up until this year, undertake 100 kilometer mountain runs. That's continuous 100 kilometer runs or even up as far as hundred miles, 160 odd kilometers, which I did in Leadville in Colorado twice. Um, so that's run the altitude, which obviously affects your sleep. And then running for 27 hours, um, yeah. 42 minutes and 19 seconds. Uh, <laughs> so all of these things I was very interested on in, in, in personally is how can I use sleep to recover? How can I use sleep as a preparation to go into one of these events? Um, And so, you know, this whole kind of my whole kind of personal interest on human performance in the health and safety realm got me into sleep probably uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And since then, I've really kind of cultivated my career into this area where now um, I consult to industries or sports teams on this area and in this area, managing jet lag to performance to scheduling of training to how to optimize a sort of a a schedule in, in rugby, for example, if teams are playing each other. To also then research as well, um, with Monash University in Melbourne, and also with University of Western Australia here in, in Perth in Western Australia. So I kind of play both sides of the coin, where I do some research and, and do some consulting, but um, yeah, it's it's just an area kind of from a from a personal passion. So. It's the old thing, isn't it? I'm sorry, guys. If you if you do something you like, you never work a day in your life. And the last ten years, I've absolutely loved doing this work, and every day I bounce out of bed and I feel good. So, I think even if I do have a bad night's sleep, it helps that I go to a job where my boss is brilliant because it's me. Um, but my <laughs> boss can also be my boss can also suck some days as well because it's me. So <laughs> you know, and it's great, and I, I enjoy it. So um. Yeah, I really like it, And I, I like engaging with people like yourself, doing the podcast or through research or consulting. And so I might be talking to a Buddhist monk one day. The next day I might be at a, at a at a factory speaking to some workers. And then the next day I might be dealing with an elite sports team. And then the next day I might be at home writing a manuscript for a research project. So for me, this variety is, is awesome. And it's all leading into, into one area. Just really trying to, my overarching message or my overarching goal of my work is to really try to support people in improving their sleep.
1: Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm sure, I know I'm interested in, we're all interested in how we can improve our sleep and rest. I I was thinking when you were saying the scientists don't really know or agree on what's the purpose of sleep. I was thinking, I'm, I'm a simple man. I thought the purpose of sleep was to rest,
2: especially to rest, you know, like in simple terms, the body and the mind. In very simple terms, that's what it is. But there's still no one, you know, one one reason why we sleep. So but you're right, in a very simplistic term, that's what it is. Um but uh yeah, sometimes the simple answer is the best. No. <laughs> we want to get too complicated. <laughs> Just my
1: shot I'm more the question man even than the answer man. But um I did want to say that you've been into Buddhism this year and you went to retreat and you're talking to monks and, you know, so let's say that's on the positive side. I rejoice yes. in your merits. Yeah. And on the more funny negative side, you run hundred or 150 kilometers and you run at high altitude. So since Buddha taught the middle way, I think that's like in your ne- in your negative column as a Buddhist, even though it's a fantastic thing to do. And I'm just teasing you.
2: But some people might say that it's a meditative practice because Maybe in those runs I do I, I do a couple of mantras. Dream
1: nature of the Pikes Peak Marathon or the Peak to <laughs> Mile, you know, race and so on. So good for you. Believe. So,
2: so you might be happy to know that Lama, sorry, that's about six, seven months ago, I semi-retired from running because of my Buddhist practice was talking about the middle way, and my body was breaking down so much. So I started swimming instead. So now my practice is mainly swimming, yoga, and martial arts, which is definitely helping my body and helping my mobility and how I feel because I've had some serious neck and back injuries. But you are right. It's a good, it's a good point that sometimes we go too crazy on, on, on one side and we don't have balance. Right. So that's why I that's why say... Yeah,
1: balance.
2: Yeah, balance. And you're, you're dead right. And that's why I'm sort of like semi-retired from running at the moment and um, giving myself... You know, it was true meditation and it was true Buddhist practice that I did say to myself, look, in a loving, compassion, like a love and awareness meditation, I was being too harsh on myself, first of all. So before I could do love and awareness for anybody else, I needed to look at myself and go, hey, you are completely destroying your body. You've come out of playing rugby as a youngster. You're in the military. Then you had all this time of running these crazy runs and not just the runs, but all the training for it and doing, you know, combat sports. Yeah. Right. Maybe maybe it's time. Maybe it's time, Ian. You're the big four zero this year, or the little four zero. Maybe it's time just to maybe it's time just to take a little bit of a break and do something else. Not saying you can't do anything, but just maybe chill for a year. (laughs) So it's a good point.
1: I I hope that the next forty or fifty years is even better, and you have a long life in the Dharma and in the spirit. And really, all of us who are talking tonight and listening, maybe we all have long life in the Dharma and the spirit and all you know loving and awakening together it's so important today so ian thank you it's been wonderful and i'm going to look up your website again sleep for performance and i'm very interested and i've been saying this for a long time so over the years i'm saying to to you i like to watch the olympics and elite sports and i used to be an all sports all the time guy in my you know youth and um I'm always thinking if we practiced our spiritual exercises, even close to the way those Olympic athletes and professional ath- athletes and ball players and professional musicians practiced, this would be a different world. For and sure. We transformed. So I'm giving a shout out also for, you know, as Buddha said, practicing as if your hair is on fire. That was, that was, that was the the other, every other day there was the middle way of balance and moderation. And then the next day it was practice as if your hair is on fire. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Thanks a lot for coming on this Awakening Now podcast. And I look forward to further collaborations and co-creations. Awakening Now podcast here on the Be Here Now Network, inspired by Ram Das. And you can find, again, my output, communications, teachings, and jokes on social media, on Lama Surya Das and my books and publications are out there, including Tibetan Dream Yoga. Much worth listening to, I hope, I think. And thanks to, uh, to you all for being in this wonderful, uh, beautiful, good dream with us tonight. And let's, even if the world is like a dream, let's make it for our children and grandchildren like a good dream rather than like a nightmare. Thank you. And love to you all.
2: Thank you, Lama Sorayas.
1: You're welcome. And good day slash night. Friends <laughs> around the globe. Ying and yang. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>